0: Section 23 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods, Editor-in-Chief Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Malizia. The importance of rhythm in instrumental music has already been pointed out. We have mentioned the part it played in the transformation of the heavy canzona into the Sonata da Chiesa, giving life and character to the themes, and structural regularity to the sections. We have now to consider the development of another cyclic form of music, the suite, called in Italy the Sonata da Camera, which had its very being in rhythm. The orthodox suite at the end of the 17th century was a series of four short pieces, all of which were in the same key, each having the name of a dance, and differing from the others in its rhythm. The origin of the suite, therefore, is to be sought in the cultivation of dance music, which is essentially rhythmical music and in the combination of several short dances in a sequence. The remarkable English collections of music for harpsichord or virginal, already alluded to, contain many dance tunes. In the treatment of them, however, as we have said, Composers showed the influence of the polyphonic style to such an extent that they frequently disguised or even suppressed the characteristic rhythms as far as possible, by cross-accents and polyphonic intricacies. Yet that the English composers of that time, great men like William Byrd, John Bull, and Thomas Morley, were conscious of the contrasting characters of various dance rhythms, and of the pleasant effect of playing a dance in one time after a dance in another, is shown by a passage in Morley's famous book, Plain and Easy Introduction to Practical Music, 1597, which describes the effect to be got by alternating a pavan and a galliard, the first of which was a kind of staid music, ordained for grave dancing, and the other a lighter and more stirring kind of dancing. But the practice of stringing dance tunes together antedates Morley's book by nearly a century, if not more. Among the first pieces of music ever printed were sets of dance tunes for the lute, which were printed by Petrucci in Venice in 1508. Some of these sets consisted of a pavan followed by other dances, saltarello and piva, which were thematically related to it, and throughout the 16th century many such embryo suites made their appearance. In the early lute music of the time, the rhythmical element was quite obvious, clearly because the polyphonic style could not be reproduced upon the lute. Indeed, music for the lute is the first instrumental music which presents a definite special instrumental style, and this because by its nature the instrument was quite unfitted for polyphony. The separate pieces in the early suites were often thematically related. They were in fact variation suites built up upon the same theme presented in various rhythms. Toward the end of the century it became customary to print together many pieces of the same kind, so that one encounters sets of pavans, of galliards, of passamezzi and courants, etc. Thereby the stringing together of dances of different types in the order of a suite disappears from printed music, though doubtless players of the lute and of the harpsichord chose single dances from the various collections, and put and played them together according to their own taste. In Italy, the interest newly aroused early in the 17th century in toccatas and ricicari for the organ, and in the canzona and solo sonata for other instruments, banished for a time interest in the combination of dance tunes. But German and English composers accepted the canzona very slowly, and all through the century gave themselves conspicuously to the combination and development of dance tunes, at first for an ensemble of instruments, and later for the harpsichord. They early broke away from the restrictions of church modes, and built up their pieces over a clear harmonic foundation, generally richer and more varied than the harmonies of the Italians. But in these early suites, too, there is the same rhythmical hesitation, which has been found characteristic of all early instrumental music, and the metrical structure of the various dances is often irregular and unbalanced, so strong were the old polyphonic traditions and the mistrust of liveliness. Of the old dance tunes, two are almost invariably present in the suite up to the middle of the century, the Pavan and the Galliard. The pavan was a broad, stately kind of music in common time and was generally divided into three sections, of which the first was in simple harmonic style and the second and third more contrapuntal. The galliard, on the other hand, was in triple time and was always set in simple harmonic style. Here is the same principle of construction as that upon which the instrumental canzonas were built. Pieces of polyphonic style contrasted with those of a simpler kind. At what time the Pavan and the Galliard gave way to the Allemande and Courante, which are the nucleus of the orthodox suite, has yet to be determined. But at the end of the century, the suites of the great German and English writers present uniformly four standard movements, of which the arrangement is Allemande, Courante, Sarabande, and Gigue. The origin of the allemande is unknown. It was always in common time and was of stately though not slow movement. Of the courants there were two distinct types, one called French and the other Italian, both in triple time and both rapid, but the former complex and full of cross accents, and the latter simple and gay. The sarabande was of Spanish or Moorish origin and was in slow triple time with the rhythmical peculiarity of a dwelling or accent upon the second beat of the measure. It differed from the other movements, in that it was invariably in harmonic style, and its rich, though simple, chords, and the quiet dignity of its movements have expressed many of the deepest and most emotional thoughts of the great masters, Purcell, Handel, and Bach. The gigue was lively and usually in 6-8 time, It was the only dance of British origin to find a central place in the suite, which is remarkable in view of the fact that the English masters were among the first to work with the suite form. Between the sarabande and the gigue, it was customary to insert one or more extra dances, of which those most frequently met with are the minuet, gavotte, bourree, etc. At the beginning of the suite was often a prelude in the form of the early canzona, and called sonata, or symphony. Each movement was divided into two nearly equal parts, and each of these parts was repeated. The first began in the tonic key, and modulated to the dominant. The second began in the dominant and modulated back to the tonic. Thus there was a harmonic basis which in these movements, as in the movements of the perfected Sonata da Chiesa of the Italians, was an essential element of the design. The division of the definite movements, which was from the beginning one of the features of the suite, probably had some influence upon the Italian composers and led them to the step of cutting the canzona too into definite movements. All through the century composers in England and in Germany were experimenting with these combinations of dance tunes for groups of instruments. Among the English experimenters should be mentioned Matthew Locke with his collection of suites for strings called the little consort of three parts, 1656, each of which contains a pavan, an air, a courant, and a Saraband, and Benjamin Rogers, one of the most famous composers of his day. Among the Germans, Johann Jakob Löwen, with his Sinfonien, 1658, which are sets of dance tunes, and Dietrich Becker, with Musical Spring Fruit. 1658, among which is a suite made up in the conventional order of allemande, courante, sarabande, and Gigue. One cannot but be astonished to find how closely the suite of the northern masters and the canzona of the Italians kept pace with one another. As proof, one only has to note that Becker's work with its orthodox suite is but a year later than Vitali's first Sonata da Chiesa. Thus, by the beginning of the last quarter of the century, Musicians had developed an instrumental style for groups of string instruments and for the organ. They had devised fitting forms independent of words for their musical ideas. They had studied melody and acquired the art of handling it, and they had admitted the stir of rhythm into their most serious work, thereby giving it an animation which would have been summarily condemned a century before. There still lacked men of the highest order of genius to take up the work thus prepared for them. One style of instrumental music is still to be discussed, namely that for the harpsichord. This instrument had been brought to a high state of perfection by the family of Ruckers in Antwerp about the turn of the 16th century. It was known by various names, clavecin in France, harpsichord in England, clavicembalo in Italy, and was made in various forms and sizes. Though a keyboard instrument, It can hardly be considered an ancestor of the piano, for the tones of it were caused by the plucking of the strings, by jacks attached to levers operated by the keys, and not by the pressing or striking of them. Such variety of tone shading as could be got from it was chiefly through the working of stops, which brought a new series of strings into play, or of pedals, which dampened the strings and the larger harpsichords were furnished with two or more manuals, which operated upon separate sets of strings. The extraordinary output of music for the Virginals in England, just before the beginning and during the first few years of the century, gave way to interest in fancies, and later in sweets for strings, and the Germans were absorbed in music for the organ, or for an ensemble of strings. The Italians were given almost wholly to the cultivation of music for the violin, to the French must be given the credit of having developed the art of the harpsichord to a high state of excellence and beauty during the course of the first half of the century. The Germans were content to publish some pieces for the harpsichord or organ, the Italians likewise. The French were the first to realize the fundamental differences between the two instruments. A great deal is due to the influence of the famous French lutinists of the mid-century, among whom Denis Gauthier deserves first mention. His collection of pieces, called La Rhetorique des Dieux, is one of the most charming records of music in Europe during the 17th century. While composers for organ, for groups of string instruments, and even for the voice, were still struggling with problems of style and form, these little pieces made their appearance, in which there is no trace of experiment nor hesitation but complete mastery of a style both delicate and in every way suitable. The lute still held its place as the most generally used of all instruments during the greater part of the century, not only as accompaniment to voices and as foundation for groups of instruments, but as a solo instrument. Even works by Corelli at the very end of the century are written over a figured bass, which may be played either by harpsichord or lute that it at last gave way to the harpsichord is probably owing to the great difficulty of playing it. After the time of Gaultier, special cultivation of it rapidly waned, but Gaultier had lasting influence upon subsequent composers for the harpsichord, both in France and Germany. La Rhetorique des Dieux contains many sets of little pieces, most of which conform to the style of dance pieces then cultivated, all bearing fanciful names such as Phaeton, Futurier, Diana, Ulysses, Mars Superbe, Junot, Hulajalus, La Coquette Virtuose, etc. They are light and graceful, and quite free of the heaviness of the polyphonic style. The first of the great French composers for the harpsichord was Jacques Champion Chambonnière, brilliant son of a family of musicians. His two books of pieces, published in 1670, contain several sets of dances which are arranged in the order already established as orthodox, Allemande, Courante, Sarabande, and Gigue. The place of the Allemande is sometimes taken by two pavans. several of the Courantes are followed by double, and sometimes a minuet or a galliard takes the place of the Gigue. The style is obviously influenced by Gaultier's music for the lute and is marked by perfect ease and an elegant clearness and grace. And, like Gautier's pieces, many of them have dainty, fanciful names, such as Iris la Tute Belle, L'Entretien des Dieux, Jeunes etc. Already in the preface to these set of pieces, we come across directions for playing those little ornaments, which were to become one of the most characteristic features of music for the harpsichord in the next century, and the subject of many a treatise. In Germany, harpsichord music was set free from organ music by Froberger, whose works for the organ we have already mentioned. Though his harpsichord pieces first appeared in print in 1693 and 1696, several manuscripts bear the date of 1649, and one upon the death of Ferdinand IV must belong near 1654. must have seen something of gautier and champonnier while he was in paris but the fact that none of his pieces bore names after the fashion of the french composers shows that he did not wish to be considered an imitator of them and indeed his style is still rather heavy and compact and more akin to the early english style than to the light transparent style of the french the history of opera during the seventeenth century is brilliantly fascinating because it reflects so much the social life of those times. Yet the contribution of opera composers to the art of music is not great. We have seen in a previous chapter what Monteverdi accomplished for opera, that he had a grasp and comprehension of those principles of opera upon which Gluck and Wagner later based their music dramas, that his music, though often rashly experimental and crude, on the other hand was often genuinely dramatic, and strong in emotional feeling. But even before his death, composers of opera had turned their backs upon the road toward which Monteverdi had pointed, and were well started on their way toward an opera in which all dramatic power, all genuine feeling, was to be stifled in a mass of formal vocalism and scenic display. Upon opera, more than upon any other form of music, the influence of fashion and public taste made itself felt. The rush of opera into a state of utter falseness was indeed headlong. Let us quote from Dr. Burney's history. After stating that during the years between 1662 and 1680, there were nearly a hundred different operas performed in Venice alone, and giving the names of many composers now quite forgotten, he says, During this period, it seldom happens indeed that the names of poets, composers or singers, are recorded in printed copies of these dramas, though that of the machinist is never omitted, and much greater care seems to have been taken to amuse the eye than the ears or the intellect of those who attended these spectacles. He gives us a list of the paraphernalia used in the performance of an opera on the subject of Berenice at Padua in 1680. The list includes choruses of one hundred virgins, one hundred soldiers, one hundred horsemen in iron armour, forty cornets of horse, six trumpeters on horseback, six drummers, six ensigns, six trombones, six flutes, six minstrels playing on Turkish instruments, six others on octave flutes, six pages, three sergeants, six symbolists, twelve huntsmen, twelve grooms, six coachmen for the triumph, six others for the procession, two lions led by two Turks, two elephants by two others, Berenice's triumphal car drawn by four horses, six other cars with prisoners and spoils drawn by twelve horses, and six coaches for the procession. Among the scenes in the first act was a vast plain with two triumphal arches, another with pavilions and tents, a square prepared for the entrance of the triumph. In act two, Berenice's royal apartments, in Act Three, a royal dressing room, completely furnished, stables with 100 live horses, and besides representations of every species of chase, as of wild boar, stag, deer, and bears. Obviously in such a spectacle, true dramatic art and true musicianship found little place. Yet some of the opera composers of the century should not pass unnoticed even in a general history of music. Their operas, it is true, are now no longer heard, are indeed practically forgotten, but their efforts invented new vocal forms which have held a prominent place in the art of music, not only in opera. Opera may be said to have originated in Florence, but it was soon transplanted from the city of its birth, and after the year 1600, the historian finds little of importance in Florentine opera to claim his attention. In 1608, marco da galliano made another musical setting of rinancini's daphne which had been set by peri into the first opera it may be remarked that peri generously placed galliano above himself galliano wrote a preface to his daphne in which he gave us his definition of opera a true entertainment for princes more pleasing than any other for it unites in itself all the finest pleasures invention the arrangement of a subject, ideas, style, sweetness of rhyme, the art of music, concord of voices and instruments, refinement and delicacy of song, graceful dances and movements. And it may be said that painting also plays a great part in the perspective and the costumes, so much so that not only the intelligence, but all the noblest feelings are charmed by the most pleasing arts which have been invented by the genius of man. This is a high ideal of opera. Not unworthy to stand beside Wagner's, but the spirit of the age cared little enough about charming the intelligence, and the next opera of importance in Florence, Ruggiero, written by Francesca Caccini, daughter of Giulio Caccini, is little more than a spectacle. Galliano's Flora, 1624, closes the Florentine period. In Rome, the opera was for many years influenced by the oratorio. That is to say, the texts chosen were oftenest either spiritual or allegorical, following the style of Cavalieri's Representazione, which has already been treated in the previous chapter. Opera and oratorio were hardly different in form. The influence of the church was strong and decidedly conservative. The most important opera composers in Rome, Stefano Landi and Agazzari, were both in the service of the church, and were, as a matter of fact, primarily church composers. Moreover, there was no public opera in Rome until after the middle of the century. Performances were given under the patronage and at the places of cardinals, among them Corsini, Colonna, Rospigliosi, and Barberini. Landi's two operas, Orfeo, 1619, and San Alessio, 1634, are both made up of comic and tragic elements. In Orfeo, there is a Lethe drinking song for Caron, one of the first comedy scenes in opera. And in San Alessio, which deals with the story of Christ, there are buffoons. These comedy scenes seem to show a reaction against the ecclesiastical influence. Among the musicians in the service of Cardinal Barberini was Luigi Rossi, one of the most admired and best-beloved musicians of his day. He was summoned by Paris by Mazarin in 1646, with twenty singers, among them eight male soprani, and in Paris wrote his most famous opera, The Marriage of Orpheus and Eurydice. Upon his return to Rome, he wrote another opera, Il Palagio d'Atlante, and an oratorio, Joseph. In general, it may be said that the influence of the church was too strong for opera at Rome, and the so-called Roman school of the 17th century has its place only in the development of the cantata and the oratorio. Venice was the centre of operatic music during the greater part of the century. Thither, as we have seen, Monteverdi had been called in 1613 as choirmaster at St. Mark's, and there he wrote Tancredi, the Return of Ulysses, and L'Incoronazione di Poppea, all of which by the colour of their orchestration, their genuine dramatic feeling, and their remarkable strength of harmony, left a standard for opera which was nowhere equaled throughout the century. The first opera house in Europe was built in Venice in 1637. Others quickly followed in the same city. Thus here the opera ceased to be a private amusement for the rich nobility, and became a public diversion and composers were consequently forced to take at once into consideration the desires and the taste of the public. No longer free under rich patronage to experiment, they were obliged to write works for which a popular success might be expected. Furthermore, the financial managers of the opera were by no means willing to pay high salaries and secure the services of the best musicians for the orchestra. Composers could count upon but little skill in the playing of their accompaniments, and had they been inclined to write elaborately for the orchestra, would have been deterred from so doing by the knowledge that their music would have been mishandled. Thereupon, it is hardly surprising that composers quickly lost interest in a detailed workmanship which would have passed unnoticed by the careless ears of the age, that they strove for breadth of effect at the sacrifice of artistic perfection, that they neglected their accompaniments and the resources of the orchestra and centered their attention wholly upon the voice parts upon Melody, for which alone the public had interest. The standards of Monteverdi were forgotten or ignored even before his death. His greatest pupil and his successor, Francesco Cabetti Bruni, called Cavalli, 1599-1676, to never lost entirely what he learned from his master. In his operas, of which Jason, 1649, Cersei, 1660, and Ercole Amante, 1662, are most often cited, and were in his own day the most famous, the dramatic element never wholly disappears. But whereas Monteverdi intensified the plays which he set to music by sudden, often harsh effects, Cavalli tended always toward smoothness. Monteverdi's style is pointed and concentrated, full of fire, Cavalli's flowing and diluted. It was to his interest to make the most of dramatic scenes, to expand them to proportions which could not fail to claim the attention of his audiences. Therefore, it happens that the recitative which was the usual medium of musical expression in the early operas was at places in his opera broadened into more or less sustained melody. The dramatic value of a situation was no longer tersely emphasized by a sharp interval in the voice part or a few harsh chords in the accompaniment but was extended throughout a long passage tending to become more and more lyrical in this fashion the aria was prefigured in the operas of cavalli and so it grew and was perfected and became the characteristic mark of the italian opera the form became stereotyped there was usually an orchestral introduction anticipating the melody this was followed by the first section of the aria usually broad-flowing melody within the limits of the tonic key After this came an orchestral ritornelle, and then the second section of the aria, usually in a more broken and sometimes more agitated style, and in a contrasting key. This section was followed by another orchestral ritornelle and the return of the first section complete. It became the custom to write the words da capo at the end of the second section, directing the singer to return to the beginning and start over again, singing to a sign placed at the end of the first section the form is of course stiff but it is not by any means essentially ugly the recapitulation of the first section gives a sense of balance and proportion to the song as a whole which is necessary in any work of art this very balance however is in direct opposition to dramatic effect the action of a drama must move forward to return in scenes of great feeling to a point already past and repeat what has already once been sung checks all action, and brings the play to a standstill. Yet in the course of the century, arias came to occupy the predominant part in opera. Before the end of the century, they were classified into various kinds, and a composer was not only forced to incorporate a certain number of each kind into his opera, but to allot to each singer his or her proper share of them. The old drama per musica became a thing of the past. The new opera merely a series of songs, arbitrarily joined by a few measures of indifferent, accompanied or unaccompanied recitative. As we have said, signs of this development are already apparent in the operas of Cavalli, pupil of Monteverdi. Cavalli achieved immense popular success, his fame spread over Europe, he was summoned to France in 1660 and again in 1662, and required to furnish operas for the court of Louis XIV. Lully, whose work we shall consider in the next chapter, was already in control of music at the court, and was commissioned to add ballet-music to the operas of Cavalli to season them to the French taste, and in this way had the chance to study Cavalli's music, and to appropriate from it all that was worth continuing. Through Cavalli, the influence of Monteverdi therefore passed into France. It is not in Melody alone that Cavalli's works reflect the spirit of his time. The orchestral parts are carelessly treated. There are instrumental passages for which no special instruments are even designated. There is the same love of show and spectacle which was already evident in the works of England and the ballets of France and in the late Florentine opera. Elaborate scenes and complicated stage machines are constantly employed. There are pompous allegorical prologues and final ballets and scenes of buffoonery mingled with the classic theme. All this is far more striking in the works of a later famous composer of the Venetian school, Marc Antonio Cesti, 1620-1669. to Chesti's most famous operas were La Dori, 1663, and Il Pomodoro, 1667. The latter was written after Chesti had gone to Vienna for the marriage of Leopold I and Margareta of Spain. It was produced with the most extravagant splendour, the prologue was sung by characters representing Spain, Italy, Hungary, Bohemia, and even America. There were five acts and sixty-seven scenes. The voice parts are smooth and melodious, but the orchestra is carelessly handled. Giovanni Legrenzi, 1625-1690, alone stands conspicuous among the Venetian composers for any attention to orchestral effects. Most of his operas were written between 1675 and 1684, while he was at the head of one of the Venetian conservatories and second choirmaster at St. Mark's, and nearly all of them were produced in Venice. He seems to have presided over a sort of academy which met at his house. Among his pupils, and the most famous in the next generation, were Lotti, Caldara and Galuppi. The list of composers who wrote for the opera houses in Venice is long. Their fertility was enormous. The public demanded novelty, and only a few operas won a permanent place in its favour. The opera season was carnival time, during the weeks between Epiphany and Lent, though there were often short seasons in the fall and in the late spring. All operas must end happily, and the comic element was never absent. For the greater part of the century, the Venetian opera was the favorite of all Europe. After 1670, however, opera began to flourish in Naples, and by the beginning of the next century the Neapolitan opera was supreme. Here in Naples the victory of the singers was complete. Composers were at their mercy, and the public fawned upon them bearing in mind that the opera began with the attempts of a few brilliant young Florentines to restore the Greek drama in which, so far as we know, recitative and chorus were the chief musical adjuncts, we cannot but be amazed to note the state to which it had come by the end of the century. The chorus had been abandoned except for massed effects and the end of the acts, recitative had been cut down as much as possible, and the aria was supreme. Even the arias were distorted or inflated with technical devices to show off the skill of the singers. Of dramatic feeling there was none, and of genuine music scarcely a note that has survived the test of time. Practically all of the more than 700 operas written between 1607 and 1700 have sunk into oblivion. Many have even perished utterly. As Burney says, often enough the name of the composer of an opera was unmentioned, A century of endeavour might well be reckoned as futilely spent, but that it left a model of smooth recitative, of eminently suitable vocal style, and the standard of the perfected aria. But such an opera as this was what the public wanted, not only in Italy, but in Germany, France, and England as well. Except for the opera in Hamburg, there was no attempt at a national opera in Germany during the century for the most part composers, librettists, and singers were Italian. Heinrich Schütz has the fame of having written the first German opera. The music was burned in 1760. The text was the oft-set Daphne of Rinicini, translated into German. Remembering that Schütz had received his education in Venice between 1609 and 1612, at a time when the new style was in the air, we may surmise that his music was in the Italian style of the first period of opera, full of dramatic feeling. Daphne was first performed in 1627 at the castle of Hartenfels near Torgau in Saxony for the marriage of Princess Sophie of Saxony and George II of Hesse Darmstadt. Opera was introduced in Munich in 1657 by Kaspar Kehl writing two Italian texts. In Dresden opera was from the start 1662, Italian. There was no opera in Berlin before 1700. The French received the Italians coldly at first, but their opera, or rather the ballet from which their opera developed, depended for effect largely upon display. In England, the theatres were closed by the Puritans between 1642 and 1660, and there was no opera before Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, 1688-1690. to 1690 but both before and after the commonwealth a form of dramatic entertainment called the masque was in great favour and attracted the attention of a number of composers the masque resembled the french ballet which seems to have come from the same source but it far excelled its french counterpart in literary workmanship and skill like the french ballet however it was wholly a private amusement people of rank and fashion took part in it usually disguised it was generally based on a mythological story and was made up of dialogue, songs, and dancing, and was always extravagantly staged. Among the composers who set music to various masques throughout the century should be mentioned Thomas Campion, died 1620, Nicholas Lanier, died 1666, who was said to have introduced recitative into England, the brothers William and Henry Laws, the latter of whom set Milton's commerce to music in 1634, Matthew Locke, died 1677, and Pelham Humphrey, died 1674. The masque can hardly be said to have developed into opera. The one very great composer England produced during the century, Henry Purcell, was influenced by it, but his one opera, Dido Ananias, is almost the only English opera, and immediately after his death, italian opera flooded london to the exclusion of any other that might have grown out of the mask meanwhile the oratorio which sprang into life together with the opera had been generally neglected the first real oratorio cavalieri's rappresentazione di anima e di corpo given in rome in 1600 did not differ except in subject matter from an opera the personages in the allegory were all acted there were scenery and costumes. The same is true of the oratorio of Stefano Landi and Luigi Rossi. The form began to differ from the form of the opera only with the works of Giacomo Carissimi, one of the most famous composers of the century. He was born near Rome about 1604, was probably trained in Rome, and held the post of choirmaster at St. Apollinari in Rome from 1628 until his death in 1674. Trained in Rome and living most of his life there, Carissimi was under the conservative influence of the Church, and all his music shows a musicianship far above that of any of his contemporaries, and more allied to the lofty perfection of the old polyphonic style. On the other hand, he did not fail to avail himself of the results of the new movement. Though in his masses he is a master of smooth part writing, not unworthy to stand beside Palestrina, in the choruses of his oratorios, when there is agitated or dramatic feeling to be expressed, he uses with equal ease a style broken and pointed with rhythm, which is wholly in keeping with the dramatic ideals of Monteverdi, and none the less careful and artistic. In this certain high seriousness of his work, Carissimi is in sharp contrast with most of the composers of his age, who carried high on the wave of the reactionary movement often refused to subject themselves to the discipline of any genuine musical training, and composed merely in a sketchy, unfinished way. All Carissimi's work is marked by great finish. He was one of the few composers of the century who worked seriously to improve the new recitative style, and his influence in this regard was far-reaching. Then, too, his treatment of orchestral accompaniments was anything but vague and indefinite he was the first to differentiate the oratorio from the opera. In all his oratorios, of which Jephthah and Jonah are the most famous, the story is sung in recitative by a narrator. There is no action, nor scenery, nor costumes, and the chorus is given a far more important part in the scheme than it ever found in opera. It was upon the foundation laid by Carissimi that Handel, nearly a century later, built up his own great oratorio. Carissimi was, moreover, the first to perfect a form of music known as the cantata, consisting of recitative and arias for solo voice with figured bass accompaniment, a sort of vocal chamber music which was also suitable for use in the church. The form was further developed by Alessandro Scarlatti and later by Handel. In Germany, the growths of both the oratorio and the cantata were greatly influenced by the more serious religious temper of the people and by the intimate personal religious sentiment which was the outcome of the reformation naturally the church music of the german composers was affected by the italian schools notably that of venice and by the general movement towards solo and concert style and the opera but the chorales which we have already seen led to a form of organ music distinctively german colored all German-Protestant religious music with a spirit that was completely wanting in Italian music of the same age. The chorale was incorporated into oratorios and into cantatas. The congregation was given a voice, shared in the musical expression of most profound and yet most intimate devotional feeling. By far the greatest of German composers of this time was Heinrich Schütz, 1585-1672, whose Daphné has already been mentioned. Most of his works were sacred. In the Oratorio style belong the Resurrection, 1623, the Seven Words, 1645, and four settings of the story of the Passion, settings of the Psalms, 1619, and the Sinfoniae Sacre, 1629-1650. All these works, though full of dramatic feeling, are intensely religious, and foreshadow the great Cantatas and the Passion of Johann Sebastian Bach, both in their richness of harmony and in their genuineness of feeling. End of section 23